Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. On this week's episode, John, Will, and I discuss jihadi recruitment in the Middle East. Then, John interviews Elizabeth Kendall, a senior research fellow at Oxford University who studies how poetry is used in jihadist groups in Yemen. So to begin our discussion on jihadist recruitment, what do we mean when we say jihadi? Who's getting recruited into jihadi groups and what are their backgrounds? It, it feels to me like that's one of the questions people often leave out. Jihad is compulsory in Islam. And the question is when jihad is appropriate. And, and one of the innovations that jihadis have come up with, the people we call jihadis, jihadi Salafis, terrorists in many ways, is they say a lot is permitted because this is all defensive jihad and we're protecting Islam. There are the fighters, but then there are ideologues and others who defend the action. They just don't fight. I would argue those people are jihadis as well. There's a whole apparatus that supports either with money or with ideological justification or others, people who go and fight in the name of jihad, whether that's in the name of, they say it's in the name of Islam, others say, well, I guess it is in the name of Islam. And it's probably also worth saying that there are different levels of commitment, I think, based on uh, territorial control as well. I mean, I think someone who chooses to move abroad to join a jihadi group is probably very different, analytically speaking, to someone who happens to live in a village which is taken over by a jihadi group and is then uh, it's probably more about sort of surviving by joining, and they may still take part in activities, um, but that's probably talking about something quite different. And speaking of Yemen, there are people who have basically identical ideas to the jihadis who we argue that we're fighting against, but who are fighting on behalf of Saudi Arabia and uh, the United Arab Emirates against the Houthis. They have the same ideology, they have the same practice, all those kinds of things except we think of them as good guys and not bad guys because they're fighting the Houthis, who they see as Shia invaders who are trying to take over Yemen. So why do people join jihadi movements? Is it solely commitment to a religious cause? I think it can be. I think that for some people that may well be why they choose to do it. I mean, I think a lot of people want to adhere to a sort of compelling worldview and to some people the sort of ideology that some jihadi groups uh, put forward is attractive. It has a place for everyone. It has clear aims in terms of how you can contribute to your society and a clear kind of pathway of doing that. But I think for a lot of other people, it might be nothing to do with uh, religious ideology, really. It's about sort of more occupational uh, benefits of joining. Often these groups provide benefits, uh, a salary. They sort of pay their fighters or their members or provide them with housing maybe or, or food or whatnot. Uh, it might be a sort of form of adventure and travel. It might be a way for them to get out of 
a really negative environment that they're living in and a way to sort of turn their life around. Maybe they don't have very many opportunities where they're from and they see this as a way they, if you're given a gun, then you suddenly have a lot of power. And this is a way of sort of bringing meaning to your life. Well, there's something universal about those things. And one of the things we found when we were doing our Ties That Bind report that's on the CSS website is as families play a less important role, giving people a sense of place and a sense of purpose, uh, other groups that people can decide to join, like jihadi groups, can play that same role that, that families might have played 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Definitely. And, and on the whole universal aspect of this, I think another parallel that is, is maybe interesting is to think about why people in the United States, in, in Western countries, why they choose to join the militaries of their countries. I mean, lots of those things I just mentioned, benefits and salary, adventure, sort of a sense of purpose, uh, maybe getting out of, of a negative environment or escaping from um, somewhere where they feel they don't have any opportunities. Th those are similar motives as to why people might want to join an army as well. Have either of you ever met someone who's actually joining a jihadi group or even just supportive of the right to join a jihadi group? Yes, I have. And I think there are some people I've met who speak. Um, I, I was uh, living in a in a refugee camp in the West Bank, and I met people who spoke very favorably of Hamas, um, the Palestinian group that is certainly a proponent of, of jihad. And I think they were in favor of, of Hamas because they considered themselves to be living in a situation of severe injustice. And they thought Hamas are fighting uh, for our rights and are fighting against oppressors. Those people probably wouldn't have gone to fight for Hamas, I don't think. Uh, but they certainly had posters up in their in their shops and or in their, their homes and whatnot. Um, and we're very happy to talk about sort of how wonderful they are and, and why they're the, the liberators of Palestinians. Um, I've also met someone who I, I was um, interviewing uh, Syrians on the, the Lebanese-Syrian border crossing. This was in 2015. And I met someone who certainly did not want to be a uh, jihadi at all, but his village in northeastern Syria had been overtaken by ISIS. He tried to move to Lebanon to um, earn a living and to provide for his family, most of whom had remained in the village in Syria. And then he had basically failed. He had been arrested. He'd been, um, he said he'd been beaten by the Lebanese army and he was giving up. And he basically said, I don't want to join ISIS, but my my options really are to starve in Lebanon because he couldn't provide for himself, he couldn't work, or I go back and at least I'm then with my family and maybe ISIS will give me a weapon. Maybe they'll provide for, for my family. And so he, he made it very clear to me that he didn't want to do this, the ideology, but it was a means of survival for him. And I've certainly met people who were supportive of jihadis. I met people who said they were former jihadis. You know, there was a time in the United States when when the Mujahideen were, were the heroes of the United States because they were fighting the Soviet presence uh, in Afghanistan. And there were all sorts of, of receptions and, and parties in Washington to welcome Mujahideen who were fighting the Soviets. And of course, after the Soviets left and, and we became involved in Afghanistan, those same some of the same people were fighting the United States. There's something very normal about people who think it's important to fight for something larger than themselves. And there's something that a lot of people find attractive in somebody who's willing to fight for something larger than themselves, as long as they're not the target of the fighting. So 
you guys have both mentioned a couple different reasons for why people join jihadist groups. And Elizabeth Kendall, who, John, you'll be interviewing after this conversation, works specifically on how poetry can be used in recruitment for militant jihadi groups. What are some of the other common tools that jihadis use in their recruitment? They use religious legitimation. They use salaries. They promise people wives or husbands. Most importantly, they promise people something bigger than themselves. One of the interesting roles that poetry plays is it provides a sort of cultural legitimation when you feel the political legitimation isn't itself legitimate. So there's there's something comforting about feeling that there's something that is universal, that spans time and space, that says this is okay, when in some ways you're, you're going against so many conventions of, of your current environment. Elizabeth Kendall is going to be talking about poetry. Why might it be surprising that some jihadi groups use poetry in their recruitment? Well, one of the reasons is a lot of these people aren't very educated. And even though jihadi poetry is generally targeted toward Arabic-speaking audiences, a lot of Arabs don't understand literary Arabic. And you have this very interesting environment where people don't understand the poetry, but they hear the cadences of the poetry. They're familiar with some of the vocabulary of the poetry. And in some ways, it becomes even more persuasive, not because it's totally understandable, but because it's not understandable, but it's venerated. It has this legitimacy. It has this sense of timelessness that people feel is sorely missing in their daily life, the daily struggles against poverty and ignorance and all those things. There's a way in which people say, well, I don't understand it, but I trust that this is true in the same way that that many people fighting on, on behalf of religion, of any religion, may not be well-versed in the tenets of the religion, but they figure the smart people have figured out all the other stuff, partly because I don't understand it all. Who am I to question? But it's legitimate anyway. So in some ways, maybe it's not so different to people going to plays, going to watch Shakespeare in the theater. A lot of people, I think, maybe I'm speaking for myself here, but probably won't understand all of it. But you go in part because you recognize that this is a really important part of heritage. You understand that this is something that is culturally enormously significant and you want to witness that and you want to be a part of it. And it doesn't matter if you don't understand every word and every line. So yeah, I think in some ways, maybe that's a useful comparison to make with why some of these people might be interested in hearing poetry and classical Arabic. And that reinforces that there actually is something universal going on in what seems to be a very particular kind of of deviation from normalcy. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you, McKinley. Next up, John interviews Elizabeth Kendall about the role of poetry among militant jihadists in Yemen. Elizabeth Kendall is Senior Research Fellow in Arabic and Islamic Studies at Pembroke College, University of Oxford. She works on connections between militant jihadi political movements and cultural production in Arabic, specifically in contemporary Egypt and Yemen. Elizabeth, welcome to Babel. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You have more from a conventional academic scholar of poetry into somebody who reads more jihadi poetry than anybody I know. How did that happen? Yes, I think that sums it up. Um, Probably 
quite well, but it is, it is a bit of a change. And my career change really happened around the time of the so-called Arab Spring, I guess, in 2010, when I was beginning to think that I'd like to be a bit more hands-on with all this years of training that I'd had in classical Arabic and poetry and literature to figure out a bit more about how it was being used on the ground. And I'd noticed, I was running a centre at the time, a UK government-sponsored centre that was researching jihad and martyrdom. I'd noticed that there was an awful lot of poetry produced by the different Mujahideen groups that wasn't really looked at at all. So I took myself back into the field and started to try to find it. Is any of it any good? Well, it depends what you mean by good. It does the job, I think, of enticing recruits, of firing up the blood, of inciting outrage. It's it's very passionate. I don't think it's going to win the Nobel Prize for Literature, no. You described your own background as, as having all this education and, and looking at a wide body of works. How does perhaps a semi-literate jihadi create poetry? That's an excellent question because, of course, the poetry normally is in very classical Arabic. But there are a lot of tropes in the poetry, a lot of reused phrases, reworked images, stock expressions, which can be slotted in. And you have your bards of the movement. Not everyone is able to create this material, but but you have your specialists. And of course, for the consumer, for the person who's listening, the audience, it, it doesn't actually matter if you understand every single word. You just need to be carried by the images that it creates. How does one become a poet? Do you know? No, actually, I don't know the answer to that. But I guess anyone can try their hand at it. There's no special rite of passage. Osama bin Laden wrote poetry, although I must say he didn't write as much as everyone thinks he did because he, he was very adept at reworking the, the heritage. One's tempted to say plagiarising it, but of course you can't really say that. It's more about uh, just borrowing and enhancing and reworking than it is about plagiarising. Uh, he wasn't shy of... of of pinching verses from uh, other poets. I think that the point to make here, though, is that your poetry and being a poet is highly respected. So it sounds almost like Latin in pre-Vatican II Catholic church services, that the people sort of heard the language, didn't necessarily understand what every word meant, but they had a general gist, but they loved the majesty and the imagery and and the sort of sense and sounds of it. I think there's a lot of power to that comparison that you've just made, yes. Although, of course, there's a, a bit of a sliding scale on this. Not all of it is highly classical. Some of it, um, most of it is, but some of it's also in shorter verses that are much more economical linguistically. They don't do all the verbal acrobatics that the that the more classical material does. And, and uh, is, Islamic State is, is a bit fonder of those than Al-Qaeda. What are the differences in the poetry between Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State? Mm. I have to be very generalist here. Um, actually, in the early days, Islamic State was producing a lot more poetry than it currently does. 
got an interesting anecdote here. When I was riding in uh, a tribal convoy through Yemen, and I wanted to see the effect of Islamic State poetry on tribal groups who are perhaps more closely affiliated normally with Al-Qaeda. I had one on my iPhone and just put it, you know, played it in the, uh, in the 4x4. And the guys have finally said, oh, Doctora, could you just stop? Could you just <laughs> switch it off? We, this is really awful. If you want to have some good stuff, we'll get you some good stuff, but we don't like all this Daesh stuff. And, and they're much more partial to the... I mean, not, not that they're Mujahideen, I just want to stress that, but, you know, they're much more partial to the uh, Al-Qaeda style of poetry. Um, but there were some very interesting early numbers that came out from Islamic State. They, were, they'd, they wrote poetry about uh, the burning of the Jordanian pilot. They wrote an ode to the knife, which was published around the time of the Paris massacres. I mean, it was, it, it was very violent and uh, much less tuned in to the cultural heritage than what Al-Qaeda was and is producing. I have heard that there's Houthi poetry uh, for the, the Shia uh, rebels in the north of the country who displaced what is known in Washington as the, the internationally recognized government. How does Houthi poetry compare to Al-Qaeda and ISIS poetry? Well, I won't compare it, but I'd say the role is very similar. Uh, the Zawamil, the, the Houthi poetry, they produce masses of it, absolutely masses. And I, I've got probably got a dozen telegram feeds that pump this stuff out daily. And so, you know, and you often see it um, put to video recordings of Houthi military operations. It, it's, it's extremely militant. It's quite catchy. And it plugs into this long tradition in the highlands of, uh, of Zawamil poetry. So I think poetry and war poetry and violence, poetry and pepping up a political cause go absolutely hand in hand. How much of this is, is uh, transnational and how much of this is unique to Yemen where you've done much of your field work? That's difficult to answer, but it is a good question. I think that Yemen is particularly strong in the use of poetry as a uh, cultural tool to get into hearts and minds. It's not certainly not unique, but I, I think it has a, a stronger role there. When I surveyed uh, local populations in the east of Yemen in 2012-2013, and I slipped in a question about poetry, I was pretty amazed that 74% of respondents said that poetry played an important or very important role in their daily lives. That's daily lives. That's not weddings, funerals, whatever, you know, this is every day. And so that was a pretty shocking result as far as I was concerned. But I asked a similar question in a survey I did with colleagues in Egypt the previous year, and it was a miserable 6% who thought that poetry was, was very important. Part of that might be explained because the, the respondents might not have understood a lot of what they're interacting with in Tahrir Square or during their revolution as poetry. It might, they might have thought of it as song or, or just folklore, uh, but in fact, it, you know, it was poetry. So there might be an element of that. Nevertheless, I think it's true to say that in Yemen, 
the poetry does play a larger role than in some other Arab countries. Does the fact that poetry is used in this way in these jihadi movements tell you something unique about these movements or does it really tell you something about Yemen in particular and how Yemen operates? I think it tells you both, John. I think it does tell you that these movements pay close attention to the need for emotional sustenance in a way that we in the West don't always recognise. In fact, I would say we very rarely recognise it. And that really misses the point about the sustainability of the movement. So much of it relies on keeping a steady stream of recruits and on keeping those who are already in the movement positive at a time when perhaps they're being decimated by drones, which certainly is happening in Yemen, or they're being pushed back by ground operations, as have been happening with Islamic State. This is a really, really key part of trying to keep your movement on track and keeping it lively and keeping it fed and fresh. So, I mean, I'll give you an example. There's a, a, a poem that really struck me that I just came across in a... Actually, it was, it was in a publication. And it was, it was dedicated to five names. It was an incredible poem. It, it, it likened these five names who were all martyrs, freshly martyred, to the companions of the Prophet Muhammad, said that their acts had been akin to the classical early Islamic battles of Uhud or the Battle of Badr. It was really very much hyping up these names. And when I researched it, it turned out these five guys were just teenagers who'd done nothing. They were rumbled in a safe house and shot dead in cold blood by the security services. But immortalizing them in that poem, making sure their memory lived on, was so important for fueling the movement, for making sure that people didn't get uh, disheartened. You talked about both reading poems and then getting recordings. I remember when Steve Caton wrote his book, The Peaks of Yemen I Summon, about Yemeni poetry several decades ago. He talked about cassette tapes. How much of this is performed live and how much of it is passed from hand to hand? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. I would love to know the answer to that, but it's not data I can get my hands on because I can't attend the live performances. The interesting question, though, which you're bringing up is, is of course, the longevity, because the paper material can die out. We take the websites down. Uh, we remove their Facebook pages. We can close down their, their forums. But you cannot get rid of it from the collective memory. It just lives on. Do you sense that, that this poetry will die out when conflict in Yemen diminishes? Or is this going to be something that becomes a deep part of Yemen's collective literary history that people remember the old poems of the, of the years of strife? Um, I think it does, that the use of the poetry does change and evolve depending on the phase of the militant jihad movement. It will never die out. It will always be there. But it, it goes through peaks and troughs and changes the way in which it's consumed 
me give you an example. Until the so-called Arab Spring broke in Yemen, and it was about 2011 by the time it reached Yemen, uh, the po- there was a lot of written poetry and great big cultural periodicals that Al-Qaeda was producing. And then they died out. The political climate, the revolution, the uncertainty, the urgency meant that they switched into much more of a, a governance mode. Al-Qaeda switched into, right, we're going to try and start these little states and uh, we're going to put out news bulletins, which are much shorter, don't have space for all this cultural material. If the conflict in Yemen ends, it could actually lead to an even further blossoming of the poetry, because, of course, it's it's perfect for inciting locals who are disgruntled with the peace process, who feel it's left them out, who feel sidelined. This will inevitably happen, by the way, in any country that has a peace process. Final question. What is the audience for these poems outside of jihadi groups? Does this have a broader non-participant audience of people who say, well, I just like the style, I like the imagery, but I don't like the movement behind it? Yeah, so I think there is a broader audience for it. It, of course, depends on the poem and on how catchy it is. But uh, particularly in Yemen, when the poetry is often sung, then, uh, yes, it's very catchy. And I'll give you one example. There's a there's a really catchy poem that Al-Qaeda uses. This is in 2014, one of its many jailbreaks. And they sit together celebrating on the in, in a desert location singing this poem, Ibn al-Khamishka'ad-Radamagahur, it goes on and on. And about 400 local people are just joining in because what it means is Ibn al-Khamish, the head of the state security apparatus, has been vanquished. What's not to like? Everyone hates the state security. So, you know, it, they, they can hit a nerve. And that's not saying that everyone who joins in with that chorus and attends is with the Mujahideen, but it helps win them toleration and a sort of sense of, of we understand what you're doing, although we wouldn't do it ourselves. I, I think it's very powerful in speaking beyond the movement. But to your final point, of course, it's classical Arabic, so it can speak to, what is it, 23 at least uh, Arabic speaking countries, although the content it can be quite local. What it doesn't really do is transfer to the kind of recruitment material that you need for Brussels, Paris, London, New York. That is a different style of material and is much more often nasheeds, so sung anthems, uh, often with violent video background. It's, it's, It's a little bit different from the kind of poetry I'm talking about. What I'm talking about works really well in the field inside the Middle East to its primary Arabic-speaking audience. Elizabeth Kendall, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. It's fascinating. Thank you so much for your lovely questions. You do really interesting and unique work, so I'm grateful. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you liked what you heard here, please subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find more analysis about this topic linked in the show notes. And you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. East.